As they said there, if you're interested in getting involved in next steps, uh, you get to find out a little bit about our church here on step one, which will be today. You can uh, meet me at one o'clock over in the conference room in the office building over there. If you walk in, walk down the hall, you can't miss it. There's a sign above it that says conference room, but we'd love to have you uh, sign up if you'd like. Let us know that you'll be there so we can be prepared for you. But it's good to see everybody this morning. Uh, if you're a guest of ours, thanks for uh, taking the risk to, to join us. Come hear the Word of God, be in the presence of God. It's a blessing to be here. Amen. You guys happy to be here this morning? So we're going to unpack a few things. I'm going to get into a new sermon series that honestly, as I was preparing and thinking about it and praying, uh, I wasn't very excited about. And it's a, always a bad thing whenever right, your, your pastor's getting ready to get into a sermon series and he's not even excited about it. I mean, how you going to be? You know what I'm saying? But I think that the Lord really wants to do something in this sermon series because what I find as a pastor is this, is that people, especially in our culture and in our time, they got a lot of questions about a lot of things. And there's a lot of voices in our world and it is very difficult to find clarity on cultural issues today. Can I tell you that I believe that the Word of God brings clarity to all of the issues that we face, but oftentimes the Word of God is set aside, and, and I, would even, I would even venture to say that in a lot of churches, I know for a fact actually, that sometimes the Word of God in various areas is sort of negated or set aside, or we, we get this idea that it's outdated or it doesn't address these issues as well as it should. So I'm going to get into a sermon series called Did God Really Say over the next several weeks. It's going take me some time to unpack but I want to do it in a way that is very kind and loving and generous but also at the same time we can figure out what does God's word say about a lot of the issues that we're currently facing now this morning is going to be a really easy one for everybody all right amen it's just going to be did God really say marriage is a covenant right and I, and I get let me before we enter into this message before we enter into this series, I'm not looking really for a whole lot of amens or applause or anything like that. And, and so as we get deeper into it, like I said, this, this one this morning is not going to be uh, that, that harsh on anybody, I don't think. I know different people have different views, and as we get into it, we will unpack some of these things. But we want to be open to what God's Word says, and, and we're going to have this choice to ask ourselves this question. Are we listening to the voice of God, or are we currently listening to the voice of culture? Are we listening to the voice of God in our lives or are we currently listening to the voice of culture? And what I find is that even a lot of times people who are good Christian people are suddenly being influenced more by the voice of culture than they are the Word of God. And so as we get into this this morning, can we just take a moment, let's just pray and ask the Lord to, uh, to speak to us through His Word. Father, we come to You humbly. Because, God, we don't have the answers in and of ourselves. And, and, God, were it not for your word, were it not for the spirit of truth that you sent us from heaven, Lord God, we would be lost and we would have no way of finding a path forward in this culture that we face, God. We know that we have an enemy that is out for our souls, that, that, that works through, the, the, through lies and through deception. But, God, we have the truth of your word and we have your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you will help us by the power of your spirit, God, to make a way forward so that we can find freedom, salvation, and life abundant in you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. You know, my mom probably doesn't remember this. I don't know if she remembers it. My, my memory, honestly, is a little bit hazy because I, I, I did too much drugs back in the day. But, uh, bad joke, right out of the gate. <laughs> but, nevertheless, when I was a young man, I remember specifically that, that, that there was a point in my life, I was arguing with my mom in, in the living room at our house, 
And, uh, and, and I was, man, I was just doing whatever I wanted to do at that time. I was drinking what I was wa- wanted to. I was doing the drugs I wanted to. I was running with any girl that I wanted to. And oftentimes my mom would say, Clay, you cannot leave. And I would just walk out the door on her. And I'd just go. And I remember one time we got into an argument, and I really, really disrespected her. And we're talking about a woman who's always been a good woman, who loves me more than anybody in this world. And I knew the things that she said were true. She was looking out for my best interests. And I disrespected her, and I said something to her, and she slapped me across the face. And it got my attention, and I looked at her. And I I was in shock because I saw tears in her eyes, and she said, Clay, you know that you cannot do these things. This is not who you are. This is not who you're supposed to be. And you know where this is going to take you. And I heard that voice and it spoke deep to me in that moment. But you know what I did? I walked out anyway. And the problem is is that sometimes the voices that are the most trusted voices in our life are actually the voices that we ignore. The voices that are the most trusted voices in our lives are actually the voices that we ignore because for whatever reason we've allowed culture or our friends or certain pleasures or desires to tell us that we should go with our feelings and what's in our body and what's in our mind as opposed to what we really need to actually do that will bring freedom into our lives. I wasn't happy, but somehow I thought pursuing these things was going to bring me something that I was longing for. Can I tell you that just the same way that I should have listened to my mom, I think we have a trusted voice in our culture today. I really still believe this. As a pastor, I think it's important that I say this and that I say this regularly because I'm listening to pastors out there in our world that are consistently saying things that are contradictory to the Word of God. Men are getting up in pulpits Sunday after Sunday and slowly and very subtly beginning to either not address biblical issues or lay it down altogether or, worst case scenario, say something that is totally contradictory to what the Word of God teaches. And can I tell you that if we as Christian people let the Word of God go, we are no longer Christian people. We have to have some truth to stand on, and it is God's Word that we have to stand on. Scripture says we believe this about the Bible. 1 Peter 1.21 says that we believe that the Bible does not come from human origin. It's not just a book written by men, but these men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit Himself used them in order to give us God's Word. In, 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 in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says it like this, that all Scripture, front to back, Genesis to Revelation, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the reason this is important is because most of our beliefs, most of your beliefs even in here, look, I, I get people who are good Christian people, good young people who love the Lord, they're starting to read their Bible, and they come to me with questions as they should. But often their questions just really reveal to me that they honestly don't know what Scripture says about some issues. And their beliefs and what they think and their opinions are formed more by culture and what they're hearing on TikTok or what they're hearing at their college than what the Word of God says. And when we have that issue, it means that it's a time for clarity. It's a time that passed. Here's what I want you to understand. That if I get through this sermon series and at the end of it we've unpacked a lot of cultural issues and we've dealt with what the Bible says about sexuality or about gender or maybe even some other big issues and we don't have more compassion and we don't have more humility, and we're not able to love people who, are found, who find themselves in difficult situations and are struggling with sinful patterns of behavior, then I failed as a pastor. 
But at the same time, if I fail to bring clarity about what God's Word says on these issues, and we just live in a big gray area of vague, we're not really sure, we just sort of just, just dance around the subject, then guess what? I've also failed as a pastor. So I've got my work cut out for me as a pastor because I need to bring clarity, but I need to bring that clarity in love. Amen. That's who we as Christian people are called to be. And it's a very difficult thing in our generation. But, but we still have to do it. And here's what, something else that I want to preface this with. Every single one of us, we stand only by the mercy of God. Would you say amen to that? Amen. I come before you broken, sexually broken. God delivered me from all sorts of different sins and addictions. So if I ever call out something that, that Scripture says, hey, this is a sin, it, I'm not standing in a place over you. I'm standing under you in a place where, listen, I've come to the Word of God and it has shattered me. It has broken me. It has stripped me of my old identity and said, Clay, this is not who you are. And it's brought me to a place of repentance. But here's the thing. When I lived in ignorance to what the Word of God said, I was still broken, searching in the darkness for something that would find fulfillment. And when I was first confronted with the truth of God's Word, it absolutely crushed me. I hated to hear it. I didn't want to hear it because it exposed me as a sinner, but it brought me to the end of myself. And when I finally came to a place of repentance, I cried out to God and I said, God, I cannot do this without you. It's too much. It's too much for me. And that's where the love of God met me. And so when we speak the truth, what we're expecting is that people would come to an acknowledgement of the truth and see it in God's Word and say, God, I know that I'm wrong. I know that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior no matter what your struggle is. And then you come to Jesus. And what you find is not that He's angry at you or not that He's disgusted with you or not, or not that He's just aggravated and doesn't want anything to you, do, do with you, but that He died for your sins as well as my sins, no matter how different they are, on the cross so that you could repent and experience His love and his freedom. And so this is where he's drawing everybody all the time. But if you read in Genesis 1 and 2, God says quite a bit right out of the gate. Like if you read it, God and God said, and God said, and God said. 20 times in Genesis 1 and 2, God said something. And so that's very interesting because you get to Genesis 3 and all of a sudden another character shows up and there's a different voice. And this voice in Genesis 3 verse 1, I'm giving you an introduction to this series because here's what the serpent said. In the beginning, it says he was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, first thing Satan says in Scripture, did God really say? This sets a precedent. There's a law of first mention in Scripture. So when Satan functions, one of the most subtle things he's ever going to do to you, he ain't going to just attack you so much in the middle of the night and just scream and look like he's got horns coming out of his head. It's a subtle thought in your mind that simply says, did God really say that? Is that really what he meant? Is that, do you think that, I mean, is, is the Bible really God's word? Like, is there... Is that up to date? Did not just men write that? Did God really say these things? And so that is one of the main things. And you've got to understand that when God created the world, He created things with rules, with principles, with standards. We even know this. We know that there's ways that the world just functions. If I go out here and stand on top of this building and jump off, gravity will pull me down to the ground and I'll probably break a bone. Like I can't break that law. It's a rule. It's a principle of life. There are rules and laws of energy. There is cause and effect. There's driving laws. There's speed limits. If we hit the parkway going 130 miles an hour, there's a good chance that you will either get pulled over or you will wreck and hurt somebody. 
There's rules that are in place. We know that if we play sports and everybody breaks the rules all of the time, like it's not going to function. It's not going to work properly. There are rules, there are laws in place so that things happen and they are in order. Now, because you need to understand this because God is a God of order and He's not a God of confusion. First point I want to give to you is that Satan is actually the author of chaos and confusion. He's the false God of chaos and confusion. It says in Genesis 1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and empty and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It was formless and empty. Literally in the Hebrew it means there was chaos. It was, it was waste and wild. Utter chaos was hovering and darkness was there as well, but the Spirit of God was hovering over it. And I'm telling you right now, folks, the Spirit of God is in those places of chaos and confusion in your life. Hovering, waiting for the Word of God to be spoken into that place so that He can bring order out of the chaos. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And He separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. See, God always takes disorder, and God always takes chaos in our lives, and He begins to speak truth into it. And even when the truth hurts, because it penetrates the darkness of our own hearts, it begins to separate the light from the darkness and it begins to bring order and even in God's creation you see that order he puts night and day together if it was always day the plants wouldn't even grow because they would burn up from the sunlight if there was only sunlight and not rain the plants would not grow and you would not have flourishing there's a balance and an order and he brings two opposites together and you see this foundational aspect of the way God creates in creation and then he creates male and female and he brings them together in union to produce what fruit in the earth to bear fruit and to multiply and so God's order leads to alignment with him and alignment with God leads to blessing every time human beings and see that's that's Satan's argument and it's his argument now this is what we call postmodernism, secular humanism for all of our philosophers that go to get you college educated and you're sharper and attack and all that it's really just the satanic thing in the beginning hey did God really say you should eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil should you decide for yourself that you know what's good and you know what's evil you can be like God's knowing good and evil Choosing for yourself what is good and evil. Not submitting to the truth of God's word. This is what you can do. This is the most prominent lie throughout human history and it is more prominent now than it even was back then, I'm going to argue. It's taught as a philosophy in our educational systems. Choose for yourself. Live your own truth. There is no absolute truth. Now we believe that God himself is truth and that he gives us his word. And as difficult as that is, let me tell you something, the demonic hates that. One thing Satan hates more than anything is truth. Because he's a liar and he's the father of it. And here's secondly, you need to understand that Satan always distorts God's truth. He'll say, did God really say that? Did God really say you children ought to honor your father and mother? Did, did he really say you shouldn't worship other gods? Like maybe you shouldn't mix in other gods that Jesus actually is the only way to the father? Did he really say that he created them male and female? Did he really say that marriage was for one woman, for one man, for, for a lifetime? Did he really say that you should actually repent of your sin? Or can you just believe whatever you want to and then stay the way you are and God doesn't really care? Did he really say these things? Is, there, is it real or is it something that we can just simply say, well, I'm a Christian and move on. But what Satan loves to do is he loves to take nuggets of truth, package them in glitter, surround them with lies, and present them as doctrine to a world. 
And if he can get them to embrace his lies, then he has an entire culture up under his sway. And I can tell you this, folks. Here's the issue. The world itself, I'm not here to teach. I mean, we're here to win the world to Christ. But it doesn't scare me that the world believes those lies. What frightens me is that people who name the name of Christ are beginning to believe these lies. And that's where it gets very dangerous. Pastors that stand up and lead thousands of members in their congregation are beginning to accept these lies. And when these become diluted and we can no longer go to the Word of God as our source of truth, we're going to lose our grounding and we're going to be defeated in the Spirit. And so let me say, let me say this, Daniel Kahneman, it's actually a book that is a, really a leadership book, but he says this, a reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is frequent repetition because familiarity is not easily distinguished from truth. Basically saying you want people to believe in some lies, just put it before them over and over and over and over again and before long they get so familiar with it that they can't distinguish it from the truth. Most human beings will accept as truth that which they see the most often. And when all you do is watch media and you're never in the Word of God, you accept something other than the Word of God as truth. And so Satan knows if he, if he pushes it long and hard enough, ultimately you may swallow it as truth. And he'll say, did God really say this? And you'll say, I'm not sure if he did or not. Rick Warren says this. He said, our, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first lie is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. The second is that to love someone... It means you agree with everything they say or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise your convictions to be compassionate. And the world has taught us that you Christians, if you don't believe exactly the way I believe, you hate me. And you're a bigot. And can I tell you that? Me and my wife don't even agree on everything. We don't agree on everything in this house. But I don't have to agree with your lifestyle for us to love one another. I don't have to compromise my convictions in order to be compassionate to you. I'm allowed to disagree and still love. And we have to understand that we can do that. We can demonstrate compassion to a world who disagrees with what we believe and still speak the truth in love to them. And listen, they may hate you for speaking the truth. Jesus said, guess what, folks? Get ready. If you stand for my gospel and you stand for my truth, this world will hate you. They will. They would, guess, well, I just don't want to offend anybody. Well, guess what? You're going to live for Jesus, you will offend somebody. It's just a part of it because they're not living according to light and darkness hates light. And so I have to get up as a pastor and realize that it is not my goal to make everybody happy. It is not my goal to please you. It is my goal to please God. And when I prepare a sermon, I sit down and I start wrestling with things. And in my mind, I hear voices say, well, what will they think? Well, what will they think? Well, what will they think? And you know what the Holy Spirit says? I don't care what they think. I care what I'm saying to you, Clay. And you've got to have the boldness to speak the truth, even if it does offend. Now, that doesn't mean we want to speak angrily. It doesn't mean we want to be rude. It means we want to be loving. We want to be compassionate. We need to understand where people are, that not, not everybody's at the same space that we are. But nevertheless, if we cannot speak the truth, no one has a chance for repentance to come to the true salvation and love of God in Jesus Christ. And we can't leave people out there. 
We can't leave them on the other side. So that being said, that's my introduction to this sermon series. Maybe I'll dabble back in it, but this morning we're talking about marriage, aren't we? And did God really say marriage is a covenant? So that's what I want to dive into. And I'm going to give you just a few quick points about this. But what are we going to listen to? Are we going to listen to culture or are we going to listen to God's word? Because i got to tell you something, y'all. Marriage is taking a beating in our culture. It's taking a beating. I mean, if you, if, you, if you do watch television or media, basically what media portrays a, a healthy, godly marriage to be is nothing less than a prison sentence. It's just not a good thing. Let's put everything else that's a possibility other than a godly marriage together, and let's tear that down and act like it's foolishness and act, act like the family union is not, that's not God's design. And so that's what culture is portraying more and more over and over again every day. But let me give you three quick cultural lies about marriage. You may like these, you probably won't. <clears throat> Lie number one, cohabitation helps marriage. Cohabitation helps marriage. And I, I got these from reading several studies this week about marriage. Uh, about marriage and about how America views marriage. Let me say this about cohabitation right out of the gate. If you're here this morning and you're living with somebody that's not your spouse, see, my immediate pastoral advice to you would be, listen, move out. I know, like, nobody wants to... I've said that, look, I've, I've married multiple couples that were living together and not married. I love them. I talked to him about marriage. We, we went through marriage counseling. I said, this is the best idea for you. But, but really what I would even suggest is to set a date sometime out. Set a date out six months. Quit having sex. Quit living together. Put God first in your life. That way you'll know that you know that you know that God is first and foremost in this marriage before you come together again. Because if you get married and God still ain't at the, at the front, you're going to have some issues in that marriage. So my personal advice and I believe it's scriptural and biblical, is to separate for a time, put God first, and then come back together. Amen. I, I told you all, most people don't take my advice. But we'll, if you're in that situation, God bless you, He loves you. And this is a word from Him. But if you're in your 20s, you're in your 30s, you're in your 40s here this morning, can I tell you that you were born into a cultural experiment? We do not even know the ramifications of what is going to actually play out with what's going on in our culture. Because hook up, shack up, break up, and that be a cycle, it's not, it's not been throughout human history like that. Like e e even among pagans throughout human history, if you study marriage and coming together and being monogamous was more sacred than it is in Christian culture almost today in America. Even our young children, it's like, well, you know that whole thing about waiting until you get married? Nobody really believes that, Clay. Nobody really believes that because we, 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 we feel like you need to sort of kick the tires on it. You know what I'm saying? Test this thing out before we really get into it. And here's the thing. Here's what Scripture says. It uses this word. I remember reading it for the first time, this word fornication. I don't know if you've ever read that in the Bible. You'd be hard-pressed to go three or four pages without finding it. Like it's a common word in Scripture. The Greek word is pornea. It's the word we get pornography from. But it literally means any type of sex outside of the covenant of marriage. And it says that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I remember the first time reading that thinking, what? This can't be. Nobody can do that, Lord. Are you crazy? I really thought he was joking. I thought, like, y'all wrote, wrote that in there for a joke, right, God? Like, nobody can do that. Nobody can perform that. But he gets real serious about it. Matter of fact, in Ephesians 5, he says, But among you, the saints of God, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. 
or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And so when young people come to me, they ask me about celibacy. They ask me about their girlfriend. The guys will be like, all right, Clay, I get it, I get it, I get it. I get what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. What's the line? And the question is not what's the line. The question is when is the time? Scripture says over and over again, Song of Solomon, do, do not arouse or awaken love until the time. The time is marriage. It's when you have resisted your sexual impulses and gained self-control through the power of the Holy Spirit to the degree that you realize you are ready to honor a woman as she is supposed to be honored and that you're not driven by your own impulses and lusts and you can control yourself so that you can receive the gift of sex between you and this woman that God has given you. Man, everybody's like, I don't like that, Clay. That's a terrible word this morning. I'm telling you, this is God's design. This is what He wants. And He says it over and over again. Here's some stats on cohabitation. Let me give you this image just to let you know that I didn't make these up. It was in a Barna study, and, and what they, they studied a lot of different people, but in this particular study, there were several different ones. 65% agreed that cohabitation or living together before you get married is a good idea. 35% said, ah, it's not that good, of a, good an idea. But, but of the 65% who said it was a good idea, they basically almost all said that it's, it's, it's something that we need to do to figure out if it's a good idea or not. Like we need to live together, have sex together, brush our teeth beside each other to find out if it's a good idea or not. Right? This is what Scripture says. Now, God has made it so that even in the beginning, like, like Hebrews and, and people who actually lived according to God's Word, man, you didn't do that stuff. Right? You stayed completely separate until you consummated the marriage. And when you consummated the marriage, there was like a big ceremony over that consummation. And until that point, you all had not been together physically. And that was something that was celebrated. And what we find actually according to the statistics, right, is that, is that, Cohabitation actually increases the rates of divorce. Various studies, anywhere from 33 to 151%, there's a higher increase in divorce of those who cohabit and then marry. Depression is three times higher among cohabiting couples. Women are two times more likely to be abused in cohabiting relationships and nine times more likely to be killed by their partner than in a marriage relationship. Now, on the other hand, they did some studies and basically said, well, let's look at if somebody is just crazy and wild enough to say, all right, I'm going to actually be celibate before I get married. We're going to live in self-control. We're going to stay apart from people, and we're going to do it. And if you practice abstinence and self-control and then you marry, your rates of happiness are higher, your rates of marital satisfaction are higher, your odds of conflict are lower, and the percent that you will get a divorce literally falls off a cliff. And one of the reasons it falls off of a cliff is because you've already proven that you can control your sexual lust and passion and pour it into one person so that when you do get married, you're not still dealing with the same lust you did before you got married. Can I tell you this? That marriage don't fix your sexual lust problem. Man, Clay, reel it in this morning, man. This is too heavy. I know. God's heart, though, for you is a father's heart. And so I'm saying this, no matter how it may feel, out of love. This, next week is going to get even more intense, okay? <laughs> But it's a father's heart. And can I say this? There are literally fences in yards to keep our children protected. You realize that? 
there were certain things, even now there's certain places I just ain't going to let Naomi run to. And there's things, guards that we set up because we, don't, we know that on the other side of some fences, there's cars going by at 80 miles an hour. There's destruction. There's death. There's damage. And God's heart's the Father's heart. It's not that He's trying to be a killjoy. Take it from somebody who was a sex addict who did whatever he wanted to do and no matter what he chased after, he was never fulfilled. Take it from me. And then had an encounter with the Holy Spirit where God set him free and God empowered him to live in purity until he got married for seven years. I tell people that sometimes. They're like, that's impossible, bro. Why did you not kill yourself? And it's because I fell more in love with God than I did my own fleshly desires. I had a relationship with God that was stronger than my own fleshly desires. And I lived not because I wanted to please myself, but because I wanted to please God. Am I saying it's easy? No, it's not easy. But what I'm telling you is it's worth it, and it increases actual joy. It increases actual satisfaction. You get to be anointed by the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells in you, and there's no greater pleasure... I've tried a lot of them. There's no greater pleasure than the Spirit of God waking you up in the morning and you know you know you got a clean heart. You know that you've been washed in the blood. You know that you're living to please God. There's no greater, there's no drug that can do that. And so God calls us into this. But lie number two is that contractual marriage works. And our culture is dominated by contracts. You've got terms of agreement. I mean, if you update your iPhone, they get you to say yes to a contract. It's 20 miles long. Nobody reads it. You literally could have sold your soul on that thing, but you hit the check button. You know what I'm saying? And we're in a contract. We don't know what it is. Amen. We do that a lot of times, I think. You get a new credit card, you buy a house, you lease a printer. You got to sign a contract. And they're good because people are messed up. You never know if people are going to make good on their promises, do you? So you sign a contract to make it legally binding, and you do it. But here's the thing. Just in that same way with a contract, we often bring this idea of contract into our marriage rather than covenant. And what we have sometimes is a job description for our spouses, whether in our imagination or actual. And we come to our spouses like, you know what, I'm going to give you, I'm about, we're about to give you a job review, and we're going to find out if I'm going to fire you or not. Because if you kept the contract and you did everything that I wanted you to do, I'm going to hold you to this particular standard. And if you broke this on any shape, form, or fashion, look, I may just fire your hind end from being my spouse anymore. Amen. Do we not do that? How many of y'all, you got a job description for your spouse? Go on, I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. And it's difficult because we come into this. And the thing about marriage that's really hard is both of us, we come in, we're not yet fully submitted to God. We've both got sinful things. And here's the thing. You can't learn the love of God until you love someone who's as messed up as you are. Because God loves you and you're messed up. I don't know if you realize that or not. So when you come into marriage, he's bringing two messed up people together and he's teaching you the love of God because you love them in their messed upness. And he's saying this is what marriage is all about. This is what the love of God is all about. But the Bible speaks of marriage not contractually, but covenantally. And in Malachi... There's a big group of guys, they're unhappy with their wives, and some are leaving and divorcing them for other hot women who worship false gods. I added a little bit of that. And the Lord isn't very happy about it. And in Malachi 2, verse 13, it says, Another thing you do, you flood the, alt the Lord's altar with tears. 
You weep and wail because He no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why, Lord? Why do you not look at me with favor anymore? And he says, it is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to Him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? He seeks godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife says, says the Lord God of Israel does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Now I want to say this because when you come to scripture all the time people go through divorce or people go through a difficult season in their life and and they read things in scripture and they come to me all the time and they're like Clay like he don't really mean that about that does he like because I mean I've struggled with this. Can I tell you this if you've if you've been divorced if you failed if there's been adultery I want you to understand something God loves you. His intentions are not to keep you locked in a bed of shame, just, just, just bound up because of the past and what you've struggled with and what you've failed to do in the, in the past. That's not God's heart. But just because we have failed does not mean that we now lower God's standard to our experience. We maintain God's standard, realize that He has redemption for all of us no matter how badly we've failed and that He can set us back, put us back on the right track, heal our hearts, redeem our broken relationships, give us recovery and redemption from even a divorce or adultery or any of those things and say, I want to give you new life, but let's do it the right way this time. Amen. This is God's heart. He's not angry, but, but with these men, see, they were making a willful decision to go against God's laws, and they're wondering, God, we're, we've, we've done this thing. We don't understand why we're in such bad condition. And he says, you know, you, you've forgotten about the wife of your marriage covenant, and you've gotten into a contract mindset into, instead of a covenant mindset. Let me talk a few different things just about a contract and a covenant. First, a contract is between two people, but a covenant is between three because it includes the Lord. When you come into a covenant of marriage, that's why when we do weddings, it's before God. If you want to get a civil union, go ahead and have a civil union. It's between you and, and the other person and the judge and the government can say, there you go. You're, you have a civil union. But when you get married, you need to understand that it's not just between you and the other person. It is under God. And that means that we submit to what God says concerning all of our relationship and what God would have us. And so the goal in a contract is that I seek my best interest. I'm trying to negotiate terms. Like if I'm going to go buy a car, me and Andrea went and almost tried to buy a car the other day. It's the worst thing you can ever do. <laughs> Lord have mercy. It's rough. I don't even say nothing. I'm just sitting there listening to that dude, and I'm thinking, buddy, I, I just can't hardly take it when somebody just lies to me like that, to my face like this. I can't even look you in the eyes right now. I'm about to preach you the gospel. <laughs> just tell me the truth. You know, it, it's tough. But, but you're negotiating terms. We're like, you can come down off that. Oh, there ain't nobody coming down off that. You know, and you're we want our best interest on both sides. So we're negotiating terms because we want our best interest. But in a covenant, we do not negotiate terms. We serve one another on God's terms. When I marry Andrea, 
Now, i got to be honest with y'all. We and Andre, just like anybody else, we went through some stuff. We've had our arguments. We've had our fights. Not too long ago, we finally looked at each other and said, we're going to have to figure something out right here on this. We ain't treating one another the way God says we ought to be treating one another. And we sat down and we talked about it and we forgave one another and we buried a few things under the grace of God. These are things that every couple's going to go through. You're going to have some fights. It's not about whether or not you're going to fight. It's how you're going to fight how you're going to work through it, and how you're going to look at it. Because in a covenant, we don't negotiate terms. We choose to serve one another on God's term. And the greatest problem, let me tell you this. I'm going to give you the tip tip of your marriage right here. The greatest problem in every relationship is because you are both not seeking God and submitted to God. Period. The greatest problem in your marriage relationship, you can say, well, it's because they're this way. Well, they're that way. Well, they're this way. No, both of y'all ain't worshiping God, serving God, and submitted to God. If you would submit yourself under the mighty hand of God and worship Him first and foremost and and, and put your heart into a relationship with Him, most of y'all's problems would be fixed. It's just the facts. I've tested it both ways. In a contract, I keep a record of your performance, but in a covenant, I keep no record of wrongs because the Bible says that love keeps no record of wrongs. How many of y'all, you, some of y'all out here, you're archaeologists. You know what I'm talking about? You know how to dig stuff up, buddy. You're like, oh, I'm going to get down in there. Well, you know what you just did to me, honey? Well, hold on just a second. Let me get my shovel. Let's talk about what you've done. All these past years, some of you all love keeping a record of wrongs just in case. But the Bible says love keeps no record of wrongs. A bunch of you archaeologists out there, we're going to get you a degree. In a contract, if you fail me, I punish you. In a contract, if you fail me, I punish you. And some of you, you don't live up to your spouse's expectations. And so your spouse blames you. They shame you. They name you. They manipulate you. They judge you. They discourage you. They withdraw from you because they're punishing you because you've not lived up to their expectations. But in a covenant, I don't punish you when you fail, but I lovingly forgive you when you fail. Now, here's the thing. When your spouse messes up, you know what? It's actually a loving thing to come and say, you know, you did this and it hurt me. And you know what the loving thing to do is on the other side of that is to say, you're right. I was wrong. Please forgive me. That right there sounded so simple, didn't it? I was like, when I said that, I was like, my gosh, how simple that sounded, how hard that is. How hard that is to go and say, you know what? You did this. It hurt me. You know what? You're right. I was wrong. Please forgive me, honey. Man, that's a rare thing to say. Like me and Andre will go through a knockdown drag out to get to that point. You know what I'm saying? But we finally get there. And God leads us to that point. The goal of a contract is I want to win, but the goal of a covenant is not I want to win, but we worship. The goal of a covenant is first and foremost, we ain't trying to win. I'm not trying to defeat her or have one up on her. No, I'm trying to bring it into a place where what we do and what we're saying and how we're treating one another is honorable before God so that ultimately when we worship, there ain't no hindrance. You know that the Bible actually teaches Peter wrote it down and he had a wife and he went out with Jesus and I'm sure they had their own fights and battles. But he said what he recognized was this. He recognized that when him and his wife was not in right relationship, his prayers were hindered. Isn't that crazy? Like, who, it's all, prayer's already hard enough. Who wants them hindered? Get right with you, woman. Contract is about getting, covenant is about giving. 
And so when we treat one another as Jesus treats his bride, the church, they come to give, not to take, serve, not to be served and forgive, and not to punish. And lie number three is that Christian marriages are no different than non-Christian marriages. This is what the world's telling us. Hey, you Christians, y'all ain't nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. Y'all... You marriage it, y'all get divorced just as much as anybody else. Y'all commit adultery just as much as anybody else. You cannot tell the world about marriage or how it should be or anything like that. Matter of fact, you need to stand in a corner somewhere and keep your mouth shut while we redefine for you what marriage is. That's what the world's currently saying. Now here's the issue is because the research is actually flawed and I want you to hear me out on this because I've read studies on both sides and I finally found one study that made the most sense because you can actually find studies where people say, well, see, actually the divorce rate among Christians is the same as the divorce rate among the rest of the world. Like you can find studies that say that. But the problem is, is that the research is flawed and here's why. If I tell you, you could ask me and I could tell you I'm a Tyrannosaurus Rex. I'm serious. I can say I'm a T-Rex. And you'd look at me and be like, no, dude, you ain't got no short arms. You ain't got no big teeth. You are not a T-Rex. But I could tell you that. When people in America are asked, are you a Christian? You know what they say? Yes. And then they ask them, have you had a divorce? Have you, lived in a, have you been in an adulterous relationship? And they say, yes, yes, yes. But another guy did another study, and his name, interestingly enough, his, his name is Brad Wilcox. And basically he comes in and he starts asking other questions. Like if he says, are you a Christian? Then he asks these questions. Do you believe the Bible is God's word? Do you believe Jesus is God's son? Do you believe Jesus is the only way to the Father? Do you believe we're all sinners? Do you believe that Jesus is our only Savior? from sin do you go to church regularly are you in a small group do you read your Bible and pray do you fellowship with other believers when he asked those questions guess what that number of Christians went down to almost about 90% it dropped the point is there are many people who profess Christianity but they do not practice and possess Christianity oh that's real good and so you can then take that sample size of 10% who say, actually, I do go to church regularly. I do believe Jesus is God's son. I do pray. I do read the Bible regularly. I'm a practicing Christian. All of a sudden, the stats change drastically. And here's what he found. It's the largest study ever on the difference between Bible-believing Christian marriages and all other marriages. And he found this, that church-going husbands, I'm summarizing a lot of information, but church-going husbands express more positive emotion to their wives, are more attentive to their marriages, they serve their wives more, they take more time for date night, and they are more invested in the well-being of their wives. So let me say this, because I know a lot of you wives are in here like, well, my, my husband goes to church, he's here this week, and he ain't that great. <laughs> I know some of y'all are feeling that right now. I, I, I know, I get it. But let me say this. If your husband didn't at least put in the effort to be at church, I'm going to tell you this right now, as bad as he is, it could be a lot worse. <laughs> it could be a whole lot worse. So we're believing, in our, we're believing even in this church that we're going to begin to raise up godly men who know how to love their wives appropriately and are going to say, we're going to read the Bible, we're going to pray with our families, we're going to raise godly children, and we're going to hold the covenant of marriage to be sacred. And we're going to fight for it. And that's what we want to see. 
He found that evangelical married men had the lowest rates of domestic violence of any major religious or secular group in the U.S. You know, here's the thing. I think about when you have a daughter, you start feeling some kind of way. You know what I'm saying? And mine's still young. But I sit there and I think, I remember even, even whenever I first got saved, how the, I, remember, I remember looking at a woman one time and the Lord saying, that's my daughter. And I heard a voice. It was almost like he's a little bit angry. I'm like, okay, never mind, Lord. You, look, you start thinking about things differently. But I'll, before, let me tell you something. You, you parents, you got teenage daughters. Before any boy tries to put a hand on your daughter, he better be putting a hand on the Word of God. He better be picking up the Bible. And you need to help your daughter select somebody who has the Word of God in his life and lives by it. And so conservative Protestant men with children are consistently the most active and expressive fathers and the most emotionally engaged husbands. Men who are regular churchgoers are far more likely to spend time in youth-related activities that promote their overall well-being and health. They actually yell at their children less frequently. Here's something else that he found. Couples who regularly attend church report greater marital happiness, support and romance in their marriage, and the wives of godly, church-going, praying, Bible-reading men have the greatest levels of marital happiness and satisfaction. True or false woman, uh, women in here, uh, are you, it's not one of the greatest things in your life when your husband prays with you. Some of you be like, I don't know, I've never experienced that. There's you a tip, husbands. Start praying for your wife. Start spending time with her in that, reading scripture with her, praying for her. Because here's the thing. Somebody laughed the other day about a few years back. I said something for you young people, which close your ears, earmuffs, right? Somebody laughed about it the other day. I said, you know, you preached on marriage several years back, and you, and you were talking about sex, and you said, you know what, even, even if you had sex one hour a day, what are you going to do with the other 23 hours? And that was a little bit too much. My point being is, there's way more to any relationship than sex. Way more. Way, so, so it's not just about physical, it's about spiritual. And the greatest relationship you're going to have is when it is founded and grounded in a relationship with God spiritually. Somebody say amen to that. All right. So couples that pray, I know, I, that was rough. I went through that and I thought it was going to turn out better on the other side. It didn't turn out that great. <clears throat> How many, how many of you that are married, you thought, you've thought this statement before, I, I just can't do it anymore? You ever thought that? I just can't do this anymore. I can't forgive you again. I can't put up with this no more. I'm tired. I just cannot do this anymore. Let me tell you this. I want you to understand that every single relationship will at some point come to the end of its own natural resources. There comes a point where you're going to have to push into the wells of God and draw from something greater and more powerful than yourself. That where the Holy Spirit starts to get involved in that relationship to, to enable you to do something that you can not do on your own. And I'm going to give you three quick things and we're done. But let me give you three. We, we've, we've got three cultural lies about marriage. Now let me give you three quick biblical truths about marriage. Number one, because you are forgiven... You can forgive. And this is one of the most essential truths. I'm giving you simple things this morning, but if you can implement them into your life and into your marriage, it will change everything. And because you are forgiven, you can forgive. In Ephesians 4 and 5, it talks about forgiveness, and then it talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it gives you a big, broad explanation about marriage because I want you to understand that without forgiveness and without the Holy Spirit, you cannot have a healthy marriage. 
It won't happen. And so he lists this, and I want you to understand this too. Marriage either gets better or it gets bitter. And it depends upon what you do when you hurt one another. Because if you have been married, you have hurt your spouse. Would anybody amen me on that? You've done it. I've hurt Andrea bad. I could tell you some of the dumb things I've said in my time, but somebody would probably pull a gun and assassinate me this morning. It's bad. But that's why Scripture says here in Ephesians 4, verse 30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. God desires you to forgive your spouse. And when you hold bitterness and grudges toward your spouse, you are grieving the Holy Spirit and He's literally weeping over the current situation in your relationship. Grieving over it. And here's the thing. Some of you say, well, I've been hurt. They hurt me. And I understand that, but have you let that hurt turn into concealed hate? Do you have bitterness in your heart somewhere toward your spouse because of what's taking place? And I get it. I talk to people all the time. Man, bad things happen in marriages. But let me tell you something. Bad things happen in our relationship with God. But you know what He does? He forgives us. And the most important thing that He's trying to do in all of our hearts throughout this 70-year give-or-take journey that we have on this earth is to learn love. And in this world of brokenness, you cannot learn love without radical forgiveness. He says, get rid of all bitterness. And I like the things that he lists. He says, anger and brawling and slander and evil speaking. Does that not sound like some of y'all's homes, relationships? There's just anger and brawling and slander going around everywhere. God's saying, you've got to get rid of all that. You've got to let compassion come back into your heart. And you've got to forgive your spouse. God's calling you to that place where you release them, you hold no record of wrongs, and you say, but I just can't forgive them for what they've done. And let me tell you something. Do you realize that Jesus has forgiven you for what you've done? If you can't forgive somebody else, you can't forgive your spouse, or, or it really, for that matter, anybody that you're in a relationship with, it's because somehow you have failed to recognize the salvation of God. Is their sin toward you worse, or is your sin toward God worse? And God says, I have freely forgiven you for everything that you've done, no matter what you've done, no matter what has been broken, no matter what has been flawed, I wash you in my blood and I have freely forgiven you. But if you do want to keep the enemy out of your marriage, you're going to have to forgive the same way that I've forgiven you. Because I'm going to tell you something, unforgiveness is satanic. And when it is in the human heart, it opens the door for the demonic to get a hold of your relationships. Period. I've seen it too many times. And God is saying... If you will let me move in your heart, you can release them. You can forgive them. And these, this can change. Some people say, well, I just can't forgive myself. And you know what you're saying when you really say, I just can't forgive myself? You're saying, you know what? I know that God forgives me, but there's a God that stands above that God, and that God is me. You're not greater than God. And if God says He forgives you, then it's time to forgive yourself. Like I said, I'm preaching this message about marriage. Maybe people standing here with just shattered, broken relationships. They're under shame. God wants you to walk out of here this morning cleansed from all that. 
with a new start to say, that's not, that's not who I am. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And, and God can put things in order in your life and in your marriage. Secondly, because you are loved, you can love. Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love is another way of saying that He is a trinity. The scripture says God is love. He's existed eternally as love. And God was always three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God pouring out love and communion and worth and value constantly on one another. Because, see, here's the thing. God was never lonely. He was completely self-sufficient. There was continual flow of love going on all of the time. And so He invites us in, in, in His likeness and in His image to get lost in that same flow and in that same community of love so that we can become one with our spouse. But here's the thing. Many of our marriages are struggling because you've taken God's resume and you've handed it to your spouse as a job to Description. You said, you know what, I want you to love me unconditionally. I want you to never fail me, never forsake me. I want your attention to always be on me. And you've put only what God can do upon your spouse. Nobody can love you like the Lord can love you. But you're a vacuum. And if you're not going to God to allow Him to pour that love into your heart, you will have no resource to love others. Love is not a resource that you have on your own. You're not a well springing up love that can overflow to your spouse. The only way that you're going to love your spouse effectively and powerfully is that if you go to the secret place with God and you receive the love of God into your heart and from that place there is an overflow of love that you can give to your spouse. That's the only place you're going to find it. Only when you go to God to be loved by Him. Because here's the thing. We go to our spouses and we want them to do this, do that, do that. And we're not fulfilled if they're not. And we're empty and we're broken. And we blame it on them. But the real problem is that we have not received the love of God in a personal relationship with Him. You want most of your marriages to be fixed? Get in a deep, intimate, personal relationship with Jesus. And you'll find love overflowing for your spouse that you never had before. Let me tell you something, guys. And me as a pastor, if my prayer life starts to get, get down and get bad and get out, and if, if, I'm not, if I'm not in Scripture and in the presence of God like I'm supposed to be, I find myself getting agitated. I find myself being very self-centered. I don't even think about how I can help my wife. But if I get in the secret place with God, you know what he starts to actually drop, drop into my heart? How can you serve Andrea today? How can you help her? These, these, this is the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, now that I've fulfilled you with my love, you ain't trying to find it from nobody else. You can actually serve other people in love. Here's my last point. Last biblical truth about marriage is that because God is one, you can be one. Before sin entered the world, God gave a definition of marriage, and that was before Satan showed up. And in Genesis 22, 24, he said, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Let me tell you something. Moses, Paul, and Jesus all say the same thing on this definition of marriage. When I get Moses, Paul, and Jesus saying something, you know what I say? We're going with that. That's just me, right? Like, I, 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 Moses, Paul, and Jesus, they all say the same thing. I'm like, I, I'm in agreement, fellas. But here's what he says. That's why a man leaves his father and mother. Let me tell you this. Marriage is for men. Marriage is not for boys. 
That's one thing that I've realized. If you're a boy, you get married, marriage does not make you a man. It makes you a boy with a man-sized problem. And women, when you are selecting a man, you need a man that has already demonstrated that he can take care of himself and that he loves the Lord. And listen, I know some of you women, you're just looking for anybody you can get, get your hands on. But I'm going to tell you something. It's worth the wait for a man that loves the Lord and has demonstrated and proved it. Y'all can laugh as much as you want. Y'all know as well as I do, it's true. I'm trying to save some people some real trouble and some real problem. Make sure that man can take care of himself and make sure that that man loves God more than anything. And then you found yourself a good one. Yeah, I got one hand clap. I mean, there's some of y'all dating some guys. They don't love the Lord. You don't even need to pray about it. Well, I'm praying about it. He don't love the Lord. You ain't even got to pray about it. Amen. Y'all still ain't amen to me like I'm preaching. It says he shall leave his father and his mother and he shall be united to his wife. He shall hold fast to his wife. That's not cohabiting. That's not fornicating. That's marriage. And it says the two shall become one flesh. That is the consummation of that marriage when that union takes place. The man and the woman are two persons, but they are supposed to become one. And this is why it says in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would pray that three times a day because God is a trinity. How how do you take two persons and make them one? The same way you take three persons and make them one. God is three persons, but He's one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when you come in the covenant of marriage with a man and his wife before God, guess what? By the power of the Holy Spirit, you become one flesh. But the Holy Spirit is at the center. He's at the center of that marriage. And can I tell you, when a marriage, a marriage is supposed to be the greatest reflection of the image, the character, the nature, and the essence of God. And so God's given you a gift in your marriage. And when we live in this covenant, the two become one. There's something of God's nature that is revealed. And here's the thing. We want to submit to one another in that love. And, and, and like I said, I feel like we're entering into a time, I hope that this has given you an understanding of what the Bible teaches about this subject. I hope maybe it's given you something even practical that you can move into. And in the weeks to come, we're going to dive deeper into some other things. But first and foremost, the most important thing in your life is, is your relationship with you. Before you're married, look, people come to me all the time looking for help in their marriage. But you will not get help in your marriage until you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ in a relationship with Him. So I want you to consider that this morning. Bow your heads with me. My question first and foremost is, where are you with the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you really have a relationship with Him? Not just like the studies they said where you just said, I, I, I'm a Christian. Most of America claim to be Christian. Do you practice and possess the faith that Christ has given to you? And this morning, just between me and you and the Lord right here this morning, as an act of faith, you say, I'm not. And I know that before I do anything in my marriage or in any relationship, I know that I, before I even forgive my spouse, I know that I need to receive some forgiveness and I need to walk with Jesus for myself. Would you just raise your hand up? Say, that's me. I need, I need a relationship with Jesus. Anybody in the room this morning? Anybody in the room at all? 
Well, praise God, what I'm going to assume is that everybody has a relationship with Jesus. And I'm glad about that. If you, if you don't, you have an opportunity to respond. For the rest of us, what is the Holy Spirit putting His finger on? Because for some of you, just like I said, this can be a difficult message because many of us are broken in our relationships and this can be a thing of shame because we know we, we've been through a divorce. Maybe we've even experienced adultery. Maybe we, but God loves you. And I'm praying right now for those folks that have been through pain and loss and marriages have been broken. God, right now, would you pour your Spirit out on those people? Wrap your arms around them in love and let them know in this moment, God, that you care for them, that you cleanse them from everything that has been done wrong against them or even that they've done wrong, that you wash them in, their, in your blood, Lord Jesus, and all they have to do is turn to you and trust in you. And God, you're going to bring redemption and you're going to make things new and you're going to set them on a right path and a new course. I pray that this morning. And Lord, for the marriages that are in this room, God, where there's struggles and where there is unforgiveness and bitterness, Lord God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would bring healing into those relationships, that, that that forgiveness would even be vocalized this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would move in their hearts to release this and that there would be healing in these relationships. Lord, for people that are single and that are struggling and trying to navigate how to date and who to move forward with, God, would you give these people strength in the Spirit to maintain purity and holiness and to seek your face, God, and send the right person into their life at the right time, Lord God, whenever, whenever that is, whenever your will is for that to happen, Lord God, so that they can also have a godly marriage and a godly union in your sight. Lord, we need you in this generation, and we need your spirit of truth to set people free. So as we respond, no matter what it's for, God, would you move in power in each of our hearts. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Once you stand to your feet, we're going to sing a song together. I want you to respond where you're at. Maybe if you're with your significant other, maybe you all want to pray together. Maybe you want to come around this altar. And here's the thing. I know that people are going through a lot of different things. You're free to come to this altar. If you need prayer for anything, doesn't have to be marriage related or anything like that. But if you need prayer for anything, respond to the Lord. We would love to pray for you. Believe God with you to move in some situations in your life. So let's just respond to the Lord. Let's worship Him. This altar's open. Thank you, Lord.